Hey everyone, Paul here. I want to welcome you to Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. If this is your first time listening, perhaps you just clicked on this because you saw Oppenheimer in the title and you saw it over the weekend and you're like, man, I've, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Well, you've come to the right place. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of theology with philosophy, culture, the arts, science. Oftentimes, I have guests on who are experts in a variety of fields, whether they might be cognitive science, whether they are theologians, whether they are artists and songwriters. We often have guests on, and at other times, I give lectures and talks on subject matters such as today where we're not only going to be talking about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which came out just this past weekend, we're going to talk about the broader scope of Nolan's work. And we're going to use two other films to kind of anchor uh, various points in Nolan's career where he had very influential, very important films that were addressing big ideas. And we're going to explore some of the ideas in those other films. So today we're going to talk about The Dark Knight. We're going to talk about Interstellar. And we're going to talk about Oppenheimer. And we're going to see, has Nolan's ways of seeing the world changed, evolved? Maybe these are just the stories that he wants to tell and the ideas that he wants to explore in each film. Regardless, these are some of the best movies you can go to if you're interested in seeing a filmmaker explore philosophical ideas and themes. Nolan is among the best. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Deep Talks is a listener-supported podcast, meaning there are no ads anywhere in this podcast. I don't sneak one in in the middle. <laughs> You'll have the uh, you won't have any of the content interrupted by an ad for men's grooming products or something like that. So, if you find this to be among the most listened podcasts in your rotation, would you consider going to the link below and becoming a supporter on Patreon? With that, you will get access to bonus episodes. You can hop on. Zoom calls with me and other listeners and supporters from all over the place. We have really, really, I think, really, really powerful and transformative conversations that happen over there. So if any of that interests you, please consider clicking the link below and supporting this podcast on Patreon. So I saw Oppenheimer over the weekend, uh, actually opening night. And it was very difficult, actually, to find a seat. I had to sit in the second row. Not not recommended when you're seeing it in IMAX, but I'm still glad I got to see it nonetheless. Uh, Nolan's movies are some of my favorite. They check off all the major boxes for me. I put this on my letterbox. I don't know if some of you use letterbox as well. If you're on there, you can connect with me on there, and we can follow each other, too. But I think, for me personally, I'm not saying this is the uni- this should be like the objective universal criteria for all of you and how do you how you evaluate your movies. But for me, One of the major things I want to come out of in a movie experience, one of my biggest criteria is I ask myself, am I going to think about this the next day or for days after? And this is a movie that I will think about for quite some time. It checks off a lot of big boxes for me personally. It checks off history. You know, I'm an undergrad in history. Uh, It checks off philosophy and ethics. I think this movie is deeply wrestling with the relationship between um, technology, uh, what it means to be human, a relationship between the is's of science, like this is what this can do, and the ought of ethics. So now that we know how this thing is, how it works, how it functions, we still have questions of how ought we to use this if we are to use this to hold all? So it checks off a lot of boxes. It's visually beautiful, and not in the same way Interstellar was. Um, coloring, cinematography, um, set designs, everything. Very well done. Soundtrack and the sound design. Remarkable sound design. So very much a, an immersive experience, even though essentially it is it's primarily a drama with people talking. You know, this isn't the Dark Knight. Uh, it's not Inception. Um, very different in that regard. But it has all still of all of Nolan's major major ingredients. So 
I was very, very happy to see it. And it has provoked me over these last few days to do some reflection on Nolan's work. And what I want to do is, of course, I do want to talk about Oppenheimer. But I, I really want to talk about the way Oppenheimer exists as a continued conversation that Nolan seems to be having with his audience and maybe with even with himself about what it means to be human. And I want to look at two other snapshots from Nolan's work, very important ones. The first one I want to talk about is The Dark Knight. That might still be his most popular, you know, big blockbuster movie. Um, obviously, that, that, that's the one in, you know, the comic book movie world that most people regard as probably the best comic book movie of all time. I think before we can really understand what Nolan does in The Dark Knight, we need to see some of the philosophical forces that are already established in the first movie in Batman's Nolan, uh, Nolan's Batman trilogy, and that first movie is Batman Begins. Similar to the great existentialist philosopher Albert Camus and his, uh, the city of Oran in his book, The Plague, Gotham City for Nolan is a symbol of the hopeless, the hopeless closed universe of the naturalist, the reductive materialist worldview, the physicalist worldview. And that became, as we've talked about numerous times before, that, that way of seeing the world became what we might regard as the default understanding of the secular story in the West, in the 19th, into the 20th century. Through the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, which came out of a theistic womb, People like Isaac Newton thought that the universe of cause and effect was ultimately brought about through the intention of God as an ultimate cause. But it didn't take long before this idea of God as first cause, as prime mover, which you saw throughout the, the 18th century deist movement. It didn't take long for that, that God who was simply the one who pressed the first domino and the rest started to fall where it was very easy to remove that God from the story. To remove him from the story as all you were left with within the deist story, I'm not saying Newton was a deist, but I think Newton's universe of uh, simple cause and effect Newtonian world lent itself very easily to a God that simply was the clockmaker God. But when you... When you have nothing but a clockmaker God, it's very easy just to remove the clockmaker from the story. And that's what happened in the move towards naturalism. The unforeseen consequences of the death of God in the West, as Nietzsche put it, um, created this, this sense of a closed universe, a, a disenchanted frame that had no discernible moral arc, no intentionality. There was no purpose to this universe. It's vastness, which could be a vastness that inspires awe and wonder, as we see presented oftentimes in Interstellar. We'll talk about that in a little bit. This vastness was really a vast loneliness. Our experience of the world, this, this closed universe, is filled with so much suffering, violence, and death that the explanations that Classic Christian theist once gave to, you know, we can trust that God exists because of essentially the order, the teleological argument, and the order that we see in the cosmos. This was really call, called into question. And many of the stuff I've covered in Disordered a Christian Journey through the problem of evil and suffering, especially as we talk about the scientific advancements and changes of the 18th and into the 19th century. And so what we can see Nolan doing in Batman Begins is I, I believe he's creating a Gotham City that's very much like the, the city of Oran in Albert Camus' The Plague. And it's a, it's a symbolized uh, representation of this hopeless close universe that's filled with so much suffering, so much randomness. And so this is very much the world. Now, there's been very many different iterations of Gotham City. 
But this this move by Nolan was really uh, something that has become a more normative part of Batman Batman's storytelling in the comics from that point on. And so Bruce Wayne as a child in this absurd universe, this absurd closed universe, saw, of course, his parents brutally murdered. And it's a random act of violence. I think that's important. That's that's a distinguishing factor between Nolan's adaptation of the Batman story and, let's say, Tim Burton's 1989 Batman, where in the 1989 Batman, of course, they, they, in, they tie in how Bruce Wayne's parents was committed... Uh, their mur- hit their murder was committed by a pre you know skin bleached joker and so that infuses the murder of bruce wayne's parents with some sort of clear purpose in bruce wayne slash batman's story and so that obviously the 89 version this is one of my biggest beefs with it is that it turns batman into a, a revenge story and there's always this element of batman dealing with motives of revenge but it's very explicit an explicit connection between his parents' murder and the Joker, and I. This is this is to me. I uh, I just don't like that. <laughs> but in Nolan's Batman, Nolan's Batman universe, Batman's parents are just murdered by uh, to steal a line from the animated series. They're just murdered by quotes, you know, just some punk with a gun, and that's very much contained in the animated series universe as well. So Batman Begins is all about Bruce Wayne facing the absurdity of Gotham City, and this is the beginning of this existentialist hero story, and the path he has to choose is to come face-to-face with despair. Will he resign himself to nihilism in the face of the absurdity that is Gotham, or will he face the absurd, rebel against the absurd, choose meaning, and become an existential hero? So when Batman begins, right, his first test is overcoming fear, and that is that the first hurdle that he must face is coming face to face with the despair and the fear of what it would mean to confront the absurdity of Gotham City on his journey to be what Soren Kierkegaard called a knight of faith, the dark knight of faith, if you will. (laughs) And it's a, a challenge that the whole audience has to face as well as they go through this story. Heath Ledger's Joker, when we step into the Dark Knight, it takes us deeper on this this tension that Nolan is often exploring as Nolan's stories, there are never any magic in them or, or any, you guys that have been listening for a while know how much I detest this phrase, but I'll use it just because I think everyone understands what it means. There is nothing supernatural in Nolan's stories. Nolan's stories are regularly operating within the laws of reductive physicalism. And so within that, you see Nolan regularly bumping up against these these questions of meaning that are so frequent in the secular age, in our nihilistic age. And so in The Dark Knight, what Nolan is primarily exploring is this tension between a a nihilism informed by perhaps a a bad reading of Nietzsche that we see represented in the Joker, and whether or not Batman is going to continue to reject the absurd, to rebel against the absurd, I should say, more so than reject it, to rebel against the absurd and to choose to pursue meaning regardless. Heath Ledger's Joker is the archetypal portrayal of Friedrich Nietzsche's critique of morality, and he resents, represents not this like, you know, classic prankster clown that you might have in other iterations of the Joker. He's not a gangster crime lord as other iterations of the Joker have, have, have done in the past. He represents the full force of nihilistic despair, which ultimately threatens the very fabric of society. This nihilistic despair is a deeper threat than Ra's al Ghul in the first film. Ra's al Ghul still has a commitment to a particular ideology. The Joker is far more threatening than street-level thugs and gangsters as well. He represents the abyss of despair, of utter, complete, nihilistic despair. Now hear me out. I'm not suggesting that Nolan is intentionally making 
Joker a representation of Nietzsche himself, but the Joker embodies specifically an anti-ethic to traditional notions of good and evil that you frequently, that you might find in Nietzsche's writing on ethics, his critique, his deconstruction of ethics. In fact, the very first line that we hear in The Dark Knight, the very first line we hear from the Joker, I should say, when the Joker reveals himself to the audience, which happens again when the banker asks him this somewhat odd question given the circumstances that they find themselves in, right? He's held up at gunpoint and the banker asks, what do you believe in? And then what does Joker say in return? It's a play on Nietzsche's, what doesn't kill me only makes me stronger. And he says, what doesn't kill me only makes me stranger. Nolan knows what he's doing here. He's exploring Nietzschean ethics. He's exploring what it might look like if a nihilistic story wins in the end. So to better understand the story of what, or to better understand what Nolan is trying to do here in The Joker, let's unpack a little bit more of Nietzsche's philosophy. And this is important as we take these different snapshots in, in Nolan's filmmaking career, and that will actually lead us to what, to me, makes Oppenheimer so interesting at this point in Nolan's storytelling journey. You know, first, Nietzsche is, he's far more a critique of traditional Western notions of morality than he is someone who's clearly concerned about, you know, not laying out a, a positive alternative that's viable. Uh, you should see Nietzsche more as a, a deconstructionist. He's critiquing the notions of morality that have been held in the past, which he largely sees as failing on many levels. In what ways does Nietzsche see Western morality as failing? Well, First of all, he believes traditional Western, traditional Western morality was built upon a flawed premise. And it's the premise that humans actually have free, libertarian free will. For, for Nietzsche, this sort of libertarian free will is a biological illusion. Why would it be an illusion? Why would choice be an illusion? Well, it's one of the logical implications of reductive physicalism and naturalism, where every action in the universe is simply the result of a previous cause and the previous cause before that, which we can trace all the way back to the initial cause in the Big Bang. So what we think is a choice is simply a reaction that's outside of any control. Events happen because other events have occurred, and that ultimate causation which set forth the conditions for life in the universe is a random chance occurrence. It's a statistical anomaly. So if you're operating within the naturalist frame, free will, if you're going to be consistent, has to be illusory. Life is simply happening to you and you have no actual power to reorder the machine of the universe. Now, again, am I saying Nietzsche is make, makes this argument that we are powerless to do anything about it? No, I'm not. But what I'm saying here is his critique of morality is a critique of this, this idea that, well, you know, we're all just free to choose right and wrong. He's like, yeah, let me, let me pick at that a little bit, right? This is why the Joker consistently puts Batman, Commissioner Gordon, and Harvey Dent in these no-win situations. This is why Nolan has him do this. It's intended to reveal to these characters that their choice is an illusion, Giving up on the possibility of choice is perhaps the greatest step towards succumbing to nihilism. If you feel like you actually do not have a choice, that you cannot change the outcomes of your life, that you are fated to a particular destiny, this is a very, very quick way to find yourself completely and utterly nihilistic about life. While Gotham was once in what Soren Kierkegaard called inauthentic despair, that's despair born out of ignorance to both the reality of their situation and the possibility of hope, Batman and now Harvey Dent, who Joker says is just the beginning to the mobsters in the kitchen, right? He has, they've both brought an awareness of the possibility of hope. And so when that happens, there is no going back to a state of ignorance. So in this case, the Joker, Nolan's puts Joker in, in this really, really interesting mode, right? Where Joker recognizes that, and now the best strategy to lead Gotham to rejecting hope in deeper into the abyss of nihilistic despair 
and to what Kierkegaard calls the sickness worse than death, is to get them to believe that their very choices have no meaning and that possibility is truly not possible. Nolan also has Joker critique Western ethics through the ethical compass that we see in the Batman. Joker picks away constantly at Batman's ethical compass, his one rule, right? The Batman's sense of ethical superiority and his entire notion of what he believes in good and evil, the Joker is constantly calling that into question, calling into the question the practice of stopping violence by using violence and the absurdity in that case of Batman's, Batman's one rule. How does Batman, having one rule, which is not to kill, give him ethical superiority? This principled stance is absurd when by letting Joker continue to live, he most certainly knows that it will cost more innocent people their lives. So once again, Batman is faced and the audience is faced. Nolan has the audience come face to face with this critique of morality. Joker wants to present as the illusion of choice. Batman is faced with this over and over. It's the illusion of choice. Here's a no-win situation. You have to save Rachel or you have to save Harvey, but you can't save them both. It's a no-win situation. You are fated, right? Here's another no-win situation. Your whole ethical compass, Batman, doesn't make any sense at all. It's absurd and incoherent. It's flawed. Yes, you say you're not going to kill, but by not killing me, you're going to, you know, you will have other people get killed. How does that work? In the interrogation scene, Batman erupts into this violent rage, a rage which is now calling into question Batman's ethical superiority. We see this symbolized through the concerned police officer who rushes in from the other side of the viewing room to try to save the psychotic murderer from Batman's violent rage. Now, why would he want to do that? There does seem to be something, right, within this and within our Western ethos that we still hold to everybody being made in the image of God. And because of that, they are innocent until proven guilty. There's this connection that we have made in the West to say, no, 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 every life has value. So we are going to start with the assumption of innocence and the burden of proof is on them. So that's why we don't, we're not supposed to do judge, jury, and executioner. But when you step back and you see what the Joker is doing, he's calling that those ethics into question. Is the West's sense of ethical superiority, does it really make any sense? Especially if you were committed to some sort of utilitarian ethical framework. Do the ends justify the means? Why is this cop rushing in to save the Joker? Who cares if the Batman kills him? Right? And this brings the audience. Nolan's brilliant move here is to bring the audience into a moment of ethical reflection. And he does this throughout Oppenheimer as well. And this is why I wanted to make these connections. Throughout Oppenheimer, you see these ethical dilemmas about the bomb, the making of the bomb, the ethics of using the bomb. And I felt almost as I was watching that, almost as if what I was being presented with here was not some maniacal madman called the Joker putting people in these no-win ethical situations, but it was almost as if Nolan was saying, whatever is behind these movements of history... The situation, whether it's the randomness and the chaos of the universe, it seems to put people in these, these joker, no-win scenario, ethical scenarios, that these are part of life. And so you're sitting there, and I feel myself as I'm watching these characters deal and process these ethical tensions, I'm right back in that same mode of watching The Dark Knight and The Joker put out these, you know, these are far more comic book, comic book e. can I make that an adjective or an adverb? These are far more comic book or, you know, the, the situations the Joker comes up with are like thought experiments from a undergrad philosophy professor. You know, you've got a boat full of criminals and a boat full of common pedestrians. Presumably you put those two side by side and you say one is more deserving of death than the other. 
and the Batman has to choose which one is going to get blown up or not. You know, these are these are philosophy professor thought experiments here, whereas Oppenheimer is taking you into the real, the well, obviously, <laughs> fictionalized. There are many things fictionalized in Oppenheimer's story here, but nonetheless based on the real world ethical conundrums of warfare. And so you're right back in that place of does the West having this moral code, this moral code that would it cause you to act like the Batman to save a psychotic psychotic murderer, right? Should we not develop the bomb? Should we let potentially others like our allies know about the bomb? Clearly from the get-go, and this is no spoiler because this is just part of the history of the story, Oppenheimer is very much um, open to participating in this, being a Jew, knowing what the Nazis are doing to the Jews. But there are voices, and I can't name the specific characters, but I, 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 there are voices right from the get-go that are having questions about, so what are you going to do if you make this bomb? Are you really going to drop it in the middle of Europe on Germany? What's going to be our ethical guide here? What rubric are we consulting? Is it just total number of lives potentially saved? And so then how do you do that? Are you going to nuke Berlin to kill Hitler? And presuming that that's going to save more people in the end. But this is where, like, it's like, again, it's like the Joker's ethical critique is right there on display because we end up using it on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then you're left with the question, and this is the question why Batman had his moral code, his one rule. is like, if you cross over and you break that rule, what separates you from the criminals? What separates you from the bad guys that you were out to defeat? And that's what happens after we use the bomb. And you have in a flash, of the blink of an eye, you have tens of thousands of lives lost, not to mention the years of devastating disease from radiation. Um, psychological damage how do you weigh that out do we continue to have moral high ground i also think the end of the dark knight is interesting um if you put it up side by side with the the story of of robert oppenheimer after world war ii and after its completion this is something that the movie explores in great detail again these are facts of history i'm not spoiling anything but um, Oppenheimer after the war becomes caught in the red scare of post-war America and his, uh, his earlier affiliations with communists brings him into question. I think it's interesting that Oppenheimer experiences this, the sense in which many regarded him in the moment as a hero who is willing to do something that perhaps, or and capable, not just willing, but capable to, of, of, uh, of doing something to stop a far greater evil than anybody could have ever imagined, even if he used potentially questionable means to defeat that evil. Now, on the other side of it, he is rejected by the society that he had given so much to potentially save. And it's, it mimics this pattern that you actually see at the end of The Dark Knight where Batman ends that story as a wanted fugitive, as someone being chased by the police. It's uh, you know Chris Green's uh, hunter-hero myth that we talked about, where the person who had to use violence to establish the order of the community in the end is not even able to participate. He is on the outskirts of the community that he had sacrificed and potentially crossed over questionable moral boundaries to protect. Interesting, you see that parallel with Oppenheimer as well. Now, obviously, the final chapter in Nolan's Batman story is The Dark Knight Rises. That is uh, just, frankly, that's my least favorite of the three. Um, I won't get into all my reasons or my critiques of it. But we do see Nolan ultimately end that story on a positive vision of human capacity for moral good in an absurd universe. 
course, Bane breaks Batman's back. He's presented with an ultimate either or in that film of lying in the symbolic abyss, in the pit as a broken man, or overcoming his fear once again, rising up out of the pit. And of course, Batman emerges, reborn, accepts that he had been afraid to come to an end to himself. He's facing the end of his finite, his finitude. He's coming face to face with this finitude. He's older. He's broken. He's realizing that one day he too will come to the end. Of course, in you know, existentialism, the ultimate absurdity is the, the objective absurdity of death. And so he comes face to face with his own mortality. He ascends out of the tomb reborn, and he's equipped to, to actually come face to face with his own demise in this self-sacrificial way to defeat um, the forces of evil and despair, which were ultimately going to annihilate Gotham City. And, and, uh, and he you know, grabs the nuke or whatever the thing was, I forget what the device was, and he sacrifices his life. Of course, the end of the story, they still end with a happy ending. And, you know, he's, uh, he's seen in that cafe here by Alfred, right? It, even if he wouldn't have, this still would have portrayed a positive picture of human capacity to be able to actually choose a life of meaning, to be an existentialist hero, to re re rebel against the absurdity and the meaninglessness of life and to choose to do so. And in the end, Nolan presents this positive vision for humanity. Are all, are all of the Joker's moral critiques answered? No, certainly not. But you're left feeling like this is a hero who's done what's right. And in many ways, Nolan's ultimate thing that he can think of for the Batman to represent uh, an act of heroism to be a knight of faith is to actually lay down his life in some sort of Christ-like fashion. It's really interesting that we see this. Now, fast forward to 2014. So, The Dark Knight comes out in 2008. The Dark Knight Rises comes out in 2012. And perhaps Nolan's most ambitious, now some might say that in some regards, Oppenheimer will be, uh, might be considered Nolan's most ambitious film, but for different reasons, many people look at, myself included, look at 2014's Interstellar as his most ambitious film. Let's explore Interstellar and let's do some comparison as to the major themes and ideas that Nolan communicates in that film and explore this question of whether or not Oppenheimer was a rebuttal almost 10 years later. The Interstellar. Of course, on my YouTube channel, I've got video essays from years ago uh, that I've done both on The Dark Knight and Interstellar. You can explore those. I've written about Interstellar, why Interstellar continues to haunt us over on my Substack page as well. Interstellar still operates within this closed universe, the imminent frame of the secular age, just like Gotham City was, just like the setting of the Dark Knight trilogy, just like really all of Nolan's films, which are devoid of, uh, of the supernatural, of magic, of powers that would go beyond that, of the explanatory range of reductive physicalism. And Interstellar works within that, though it toys regularly throughout the movie with this idea that maybe there is some sort of transcendent quality to existence. Maybe there is more. At the core, Interstellar is about the deep pangs for transcendence we experience as we feel trapped in the closed universe of the naturalist worldview, trapped in the imminent frame. The questions that Nolan provokes his secular age viewers to ask and reflect on is questions like, is reality comprised simply of matter and nothing more? Is it fate, our very existence, our very sense of meaning and purpose to be nothing more than the crude evolutionary appetites of common animals? Are our very feelings of love and capacity for compassion reducible to some sort of computer-like mechanical programming beyond our control? And what do we do with those sudden intrusions of thought that disrupt our notions of a closed, unenchanted, disenchanted universe 
those moments of feeling haunted by something more, something transcendent. Many of you know the story. I'm not going to go over and do a recap of the story, but the way that Nolan sets up this closed universe, it's not a crime-ridden place like Gotham City. It is much more, in some ways, still akin to Camus' Oran. It is a place that has been struck by blight, and there is this, this heavy, weighty, malaise that sits atop nearly every frame of this movie until we get into space. There's this heavy dust everywhere. Global superpowers have disbanded their armies, right? In many ways, this seems like a world that's a lot better than Nolan's Gotham, but humanity is threatened by the far more dull and simple demise. It's much more simple than global war. There is blight undisclosed environmental catastrophes, and this just heavy cloud of despair as thick as the clouds of dust that cover everything, our characters, the plates, their homes, their trucks. <laughs> Borrowing a phrase from the poet Dylan Thomas's do not go gentle into that good night. The dying of the light slowly and inescapably approaches in the beginning of Interstellar, the primary protagonist, Cooper, played by Matthew McConaughey, he's a former NASA pilot, lost his wife, right? I won't go through all the details, but Cooper is an explorer. He's an adventure seeker at heart, but despair has caused him to lose that capacity for adventure seeking, his capacity for hope. And so Cooper, all he has is longings for the past. He has no hope for the future. A past where he's felt a sense of meaning and purpose. A past where people were encouraged to look to the stars for answers. Cooper's initial efforts to find meaning are through attempts at using what Taylor calls historical nostalgia. It's what uh, Clay Rutledge has confirmed throughout much of his existential um, uh, behavior, uh, behavioral and cognitive science research that nostalgia is one of the ways people facing despair Facing being trapped in the imminent frame, it's one of the ways they search for meaning. But Cooper soon finds himself haunted. He's haunted by this experience as his daughter Murph has this bookshelf. And of course, the books come falling off of the shelf in her room, and she thinks there's a ghost in her room. Taylor uses this language haunting, and haunting describes an experience that it beckons our curiosity about the transcendent. It, it causes us to feel like there might be more to the imminent frame. And so it's actually Cooper's daughter, Murph, that experiences this haunting just as we do as the audience. And I remember sitting through that going, oh, wow, is Nolan actually going to explore more than what the imminent frame has to offer here? I was very interested in where he was taking this story, immaterial ghosts, spiritual beings. That's not typical of Nolan's films. And Cooper represents in many ways Nolan's voice in this. He instantly goes to Murph and says, you know, that stuff isn't real. There's no ghosts. There's no spirits. What you need to do is use science to determine the cause of this, and you need to dispel the, the myth here. You need to get rid of the haunting to expel that haunting sensation and stay within the imminent frame. Cooper is closed to transcendence. Murph is a little more open to transcendence. But she's not the only one. There's Dr. Amelia Brand, played by Anne Hathaway. Brand is a scientist that in principle agrees with that naturalist framework, and yet she's experiencing this deeper, supra-rational feeling about the hopeful possibility of the existence of the transcendent. She feels, to use Taylor's language, she feels cross-pressured. She feels pressured to to adhere to the culturally established stories of this closed imminent frame on one side, and yet she simultaneously feels this deep sense of inadequacy with that story on the other side. And she proposes that there might be some transcendent quality to love that's beyond the scope of reductive naturalism. And in the end, I guess Nolan suggests that she might be right, but not that because love is... You know, in the Christian tradition, of course, we would say that love comes from God. Anyone who is born of him, born again, anyone who does not love does not know God. The greatest love, greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. So we see this in, in 
Cooper's actions as he's willing to sacrifice. And so you could certainly say, ah, yes, you know, uh, my friend Damian Walters made a case that there's, there's all this Christian symbolism in Interstellar. I can see it, but ultimately I don't think that's what Nolan is doing here. What you actually see Nolan doing is copying something that seems pretty explicit from New Age humanist uh, Jean Houston. This is like straight out of her playbook. Houston argued in the 90s, I believe, that this is when she first started writing about this. Maybe it was in the 80s. She talked about um, the inevitable progress of the human species, that we were on a trajectory course. What was guiding that trajectory course? I don't know. But that you were on an inevitable trajectory from type one civilizations where we will be leaving Earth, creating space colonies that have viable ecologies to type two civilizations where we become capable on a sensory level of controlling the resources of entire solar systems to ultimately type three civilizations where we become gods ourselves. And so you can see in Nolan's story that Nolan ultimately has, yes, the universe seems this blight, this heaviness. Did we kill the earth? Yes, but it is within our capacity to transcend and to go beyond. In fact, it is even our destiny to do so that we are the authors of our own destiny. This is what this is what Nolan is doing in Interstellar. It's a very, in a humanist frame, in a secular humanist frame, it's a very hopeful story. No, we are not doomed in dis, in, to despair. We're not doomed to the abyss. It's very much in keeping still with what he was saying in the, in the Batman trilogy, in his Batman trilogy. In the end, yes, despair, nihilistic despair, can feel overwhelming. But you know what? Lone individuals guided by truth. Where's this truth come from? Nolan doesn't have an answer for it. <laughs> guided by other-centered love. Why does that work? Nolan doesn't have an answer for that either. But in the end, we must we self-author our own future. In some sense, it's very existentialist in the the Camus sort of way, not in the Kierkegaardian way, but in the more 20th century existentialist movement that you can author your own destiny in an absurd world. It is not only within our capacity, it is our destiny to right the wrongs of the world, not with and through some anchoring in ultimate an ultimate reality beyond us, not in anchoring ourselves in the telos of God's design for humanity in the cosmos. That's not it. It's through self-authoring by ambitiously looking to the stars, diligently giving ourselves to science and loving our fellow human as if they were our own child. This is how we respond to the meaning crisis. This is how we move beyond nihilism into a vision of hope, a vision of flourishing. It's a very positive outlook in the end. If Interstellar was Nolan paying homage to Houston and Carl Sagan in an attempt to offer a hopeful vision of humanity's capacity to redeem ourselves and the cosmos through technological advancement and mastery of the laws of nature, then Oppenheimer is a rebuttal against his own work. Oppenheimer is Christopher Nolan's most Augustinian vision of the human condition. What do I mean by that? You know, it was from the Augustinian school of thought that Christians influenced by Augustine, whether they be Catholic or um, Protestant. Of course, Luther and Calvin were trying to return and back to the earliest, most trusted sources. And what they had access to was predominantly Augustine. And so Luther and Calvin very much influenced by their, their readings of Augustine, especially Augustine's work in the Pelagian controversies. And to understand what went on in Augustine's controversy with Pelagius and Julian of Aclanum, that is central to understanding what I mean by saying that Oppenheimer is Nolan's most Augustinian film. Really, the two central questions being wrestled with by Augustine and Pelagius and his followers, including Bishop Julian of Aclanum, are one, are humans, number one, are humans sinful and prone to misuse their will by their very nature? Yes or no? 
Augustine says yes. Pelagius evidently says no. That's not the case. We are not by our very nature sinful. Augustine's answer is yes, and this is very important. Question number two that they're dealing with is if so, if they are, if humans are sinful and prone to misuse their will by their very nature, if that's the case, then how? Would it be to some already fallen pre-existent soul, like in the teaching of Origen? Or is our inherent sinfulness somehow transferred to us from the first sinner, Adam? Pelagius taught that humans were created good by God and had the capacity to use their free will to either move towards the good or away from it. In many ways, Pelagius and uh, Julian of Aclanum, they their claims actually didn't sound all that different from like Gregory of Nyssa, Origen, Justin Martyr, their earlier church fathers who they actually sound kind of close to. But Augustine had concerns here, and his concerns emerged out of a logical question. If the will is free to move towards the good, then couldn't one, through a sheer act of will, move themselves to salvation and union with God? And that's a problem for Augustine. The problem is, if that is the case, then what is the point of Christ? And what would we make of the scriptures, the Pauline theology, which seems to suggest that if you could have willed yourself into living in perfect alignment with God's will, then the law would have been sufficient. Augustine's response to Pelagius and Julian of Aclanum is one of the most crucial moments in human history, and it carries massive implications for how every subsequent generation of Christians in the West attempted to address these kinds of questions. Augustine's response to Pelagianism was that inherent, humans' inherent sinfulness is because Adam had a sinful soul that was contaminated by the fall. So in the fall, Adam's soul, the very essence of who he is, becomes sinful. And so then, because we are in Adam, it is passed on to us hereditarily through the act of sexual procreation. All the biological descendants of Adam All of them inherit his seed, and because we all inherit Adam's seed, we have this utterly depraved soul that is in need of saving the depravity. The depravity is baked into us, and so it makes our wills incapable of actually choosing the good, and it makes our fundamental orientation aimed towards evil. And that is what I mean when I say this movie is Augustine (laughs) in its presentation of the human condition. People are in, they are bent, bent towards selfishness throughout this movie. Are there punctuated moments where you go, yeah, there's someone here wrestling with whether or not we should drop the bomb or not, or wrestling with, you know, as he's interacting with communists and revolutionaries on the campus of Berkeley who are dealing with questions on what is the fair and just treatment of laborers and things like that. Yes, that... And Augustine's not going to deny that. The problem is that we are incapable of ultimately choosing the good. And the only way that that can change and our default destination, our trajectory away from God, away from the good, the only way that can be intercepted is that our souls must experience a conversion from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Augustine argues there's this inherent deficiency in the will itself. And he doesn't give any explanation really for why that deficiency exists other than pointing to Adam's sin. So he doesn't give an explanation going all the way back to like who tempted the tempter. Why is that even a possibility? That's not necessarily something Augustine explains in thorough detail. Um, You know, maybe it's the logical necessity of metaphysical evil. You can read about all that stuff in my book, Disordered, all right? But what's important here to note is that Augustine sees the will as broken. This is an idea later picked up on by Luther. That, and Luther argues, you know, your, your, your soul is like a horse, you know? And what's, what it does is just simply respond to the rider sitting atop it. And so what is directing the will for Luther, reading back, looking at Augustine, is he sees the will as being born uh, in this world with Satan as its rider. That is the default mode of our will. 
is bent towards evil, bent towards selfishness. There were jokes going around, uh, you know, when the, the Barbie and Oppenheimer um, release dates came out and people realized they were happening on the same day and you have this, all these very bright pink images of, of Barbie and then, of course, this very dark and black and white, much of the films in black and white, the, the, the dark dreariness of this, the subject matter and the tone of the film and juxtaposed side by side those two pictures. Some had said, well, you know, this is uh, Catholic, Barbie is the Catholic theology of the human condition and Oppenheimer is the Protestant one. And there's, there's something to that. Obviously, Augustine is, is, <laughs> Augustine is a um, monumental that that's an understatement. Probably the most important person outside of the the scriptures for both Catholics and Protestants. But it was Luther and Calvin that really leaned into the depravity of the will from Augustine and thought they were really reclaiming that that and thought that that had been lost throughout the centuries in the Catholic Church. So when I say this is a very August Augustinian film, you could also say this is a very Calvinist film too as well in the way that nolan presents the human condition yes could you come out and be inspired by um the beauty of the the laws of physics sure but there's also again primarily this sense of dread and terror at the capacity for what humans can do with the knowledge of those laws it's like every single frame as beautiful as this movie is, the sound design, the soundtrack, it's, it's beautiful. It's juxtaposed up against the sense throughout this, this heavy sense of the presence of sin. And I say that with a capital S in the, in the, uh, in the tradition of the apocalyptic Paul, the apocalyptic readings of, 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 of Pauline theology where sin is Sin is a principality and power, not just something within us, a temptation, but it is a power that ensnares us. And you can feel that in every frame of this movie, that this is, this vision that Nolan gives us of humanity is, is different from the other two films. It, it, of course, in Gotham, you had, obviously, an absurd world filled with moral complexities, you had an interstellar, a world that was broken because, very strongly hinted at, because of human behavior in the planet, creating an ecological disaster. You certainly had that hinted at, and you could say, well, those, those are Augustinian visions as well. But the solutions that, that Nolan gives in those two films are still very much human. They are very much humanist. They are with, it is within our capacity to write these wrongs. In fact, it is our destiny to do these, and it takes the resilience and the courage of a lone individual with the courage to do what's right, the courage to lay down their life, the courage to be able to reject nihilism. You don't feel that same sense of optimism in this film. This is a fallen world. Oppenheimer's story is a story of a fallen world where humans have no capacity to redeem themselves, no capacity to usher in paradise. Every motivation, which appears to be potentially for a good, like, all right, well, here's a pure motivation, like maybe, uh, maybe we've got some of these Jewish scientists that want to rescue the oppressed Jewish people from the evils of Nazism. That seems like it's a good thing. But then there's always this question that lingers, well, maybe there's a selfish motivation here by Oppenheimer. Maybe there's ambition. Maybe there's greed. This is a guy that definitely struggles with lust. I want to say that. If you haven't seen the film, uh, you know, I, I would give you some caution. There is some uh, explicit sexual content in it, which is very different from Nolan movies. I can't really think of another Nolan movie that has uh, this sort of content in it or nudity in it at all. So, you know, if you haven't seen it, I'll just give you a fair warning about that. It is a world that is twisted, perverted by selfish motives. They stand side by side with the motivations of like, we've got to save our people. We've got to save Americans. We've got to save Jews. We've got to defeat the Nazis. And yet you're still left wondering, are we potentially worse than them in some capacity as we use the bomb and we wipe out tens of 
thousands of civilians. What is it that separates us from them? Again, those joker questions, the moral ambiguities, the, 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 the Nietzschean questions of Western morality and our ethical guiding compass are, are all over the place. As I was watching the movie, I couldn't help. I kept thinking of the, the, what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. It's such a different tone from what you see in Interstellar, where there is, again, this, this sense of hope, like even, even a hope in the way humans can use technology to bring about the redemption of the planet, the saving of the world. You see an appreciation for the mysteries of physics and the universe, this rever- reverential awe and in Interstellar for the mysteries of physics and the universe. And then, of course, there's punctuated moments of terror about the way that we seem to be in this relationship to the natural world where we are helpless in some regards, that there might be natural evils out there, even on other galaxies and planets. I think about that great scene in Interstellar where they're on that planet and they're, the huge wave is coming coming in and how terrifying. Oh, boy, that was such a well-done scene, but it was it was terrifying, right? But there, there might be, there might be what we might call natural evils even on other planets, and we are in some ways, we're like powerless to stop it, right? So you have moments like that in Interstellar, but largely the end is hopeful about our technological capacity, our capacity as humans to use technology for good, for positive, transformative purposes. And even as you, you know, see Cooper's entering into the black hole, there is this like almost religious wonder at the beauty of the cosmos. At least I think that's my experience. I think that's many people's experience. He goes in and it's, you're on the edge of your seat, but there's, as they approach the black hole, there's this, this awe-inspiring beauty to it. In Oppenheimer, you don't get that sense. At least I didn't. <laughs> about the mysteries of the cosmos and the mysteries of physics. Physics in Oppenheimer is far more terrifying than beautiful. And those who master its mysteries become like Prometheus. If grasping to become like the gods was our only hope in Interstellar, it is our original and perpetual sin in Oppenheimer. Technology in the hands of sinful gods can save, but it also mercilessly destroys. Oppenheimer has no heroes, only broken and complex humans desperately searching for salvation. But what did you think? If you've seen Oppenheimer already, what do you think? Do you think there were actually some heroes in this story that are in keeping with what we've seen from previous installments, previous stories told by Nolan of individuals with the courage to do what's right, to reject and to rebel against the absurd, to choose meaning, to actually have this hopeful vision of humanity's capacity to do what's right and that technology is a tool for our benefit and our good in the hands of those who have the courage to do what's right. Do you see anything like that in there? Am I coming off with the wrong reading of this story? I'd love to hear from you. There's several ways you can reach out to me, of course, You can reach out if you are a supporter on Patreon. You can send me a message. You could actually just drop a comment in the discussion forum for this episode. I post a discussion forum for each episode, and you can throw your comments and questions in there, your disagreements. I'd love to hear from you. You could also participate in our uh, Discord server if you're a supporter on Patreon too as well. Otherwise, you can reach out to me on Twitter or on Instagram. Man, I said Twitter like I was very British. Twitter on Instagram. You know, who knows, by the time this comes out, there's rumors that uh, Twitter is Twitter is going to be renamed to X. So if you're still on X, I don't, I don't know what's going on, guys. Uh, I'm on whatever Elon's thing is still. So if you want to find me there with questions, opinions, I'd love to hear from you there as well. 
Finally, I want to thank Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, John Mark, Josie, J. Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul, Rob, Sam P., Selena, Stephen, and Tim. Thank you all for your generous support, and until next time, we'll talk again soon.